0: O'clock on Friday. Um, as we head into Easter, we get to celebrate what Christ did and his completed and finished work on the cross for us. Now, it is a big Sunday. It is Palm Sunday. And um, for those of you who are used to the tradition of, of doing a, a separate sermon just on that, we're not quite going there, but stick with me. We will get there in the end. We are going to stick with the book of Ruth this morning and finish out the first chapter. But let me begin with a quote, and this quote will be explained in a moment. The quote is this, Good is the will of the Lord, good is the will of the Lord, who cannot wrong me and cannot wrong mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. Good is the will of the Lord, who cannot wrong me or mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us All our days. Those were the words of Alan Cameron, which have been recorded throughout history. He was a humble merchant in Scotland who was arrested in the middle of the night in 1678 for the crime of opening his house to Christians who would come and gather together to worship as Scripture would instruct us. And as he sat in prison for the crime of worshiping God, he had much to reflect upon. He no doubt was racked with the grief of the death of his only daughter, Marion. She had been murdered by the authorities for the very same crime, for gathering with other Christians to worship in person as God has commanded. But he did have two sons left, and he could worry about them, and he did worry about them, and he prayed for them, because Richard, his oldest son, had a tremendous conversion to Christ and had become a notable and fiery preacher in Scotland. And he would lead worship services secretly in the woods as Christians gathered to honor Christ under the threat of imprisonment and death week after week. And his second son, Michael, was much like him. And as he sat in prison, Richard and the younger son, Michael, were ambushed by the king's men on their way to lead a worship service. Michael was executed, murdered along with many of the worshipers. But Richard was famous, and so they needed to make an example of Richard. They cut off his head and they cut off his hands to display publicly to all of those in town. It was a reminder to all of what the price of following Jesus Christ would be for them. Alan had been in prison for two years by this time. He had been offered the chance for release. But he would not recant his faith in Jesus, and he would not agree to not meet with the saints to worship him. And so he sat in jail. And seeking to inflict as much emotional pain as possible, a guard threw open the door and tossed into his lap the severed hands of his son. And he asked, whose hands are these? Alan knew they were his sons, and he wept. And then he looked at the guard. And he said, good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me or mine but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. Alan Cameron had lost everything for Christ. And he left a legacy pointing to nothing but God's goodness and God's mercy. And that is what really knowing God And who God is, produces. But in our text this morning in Ruth, we are going to see a much more common, a much more unfortunate reaction to suffering. where Naomi, who is very self-focused and seems to have lost sight of who God is, says to all the people around her, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word, we're grateful that you have preserved this history for us, that by the work of your spirit, you have carried men along as they wrote it down so that we might understand these marvelous and important truths about you, uh, that we might apply them to our lives. So open our hearts and our minds and let your spirit work within us as such that we can see and apply your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we will be in Ruth chapter 1. As I mentioned, our text this morning is actually the final verses, verses 19 through 22. As you turn there, though, I want to read from Luke 15, because I want you to have this in the back of your mind as we get there. In this chapter, chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, Jesus provides three illustrations. He tells three parables to get our attention focused on the most important thing, which is eternity and where a person will spend it. Because there are only two destinations. There is eternal life for those who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone, in His perfect life, in His substitutionary death on the cross, and in His resurrection. And the other destination, of course, we know is eternal death. And if only it were that simple, but we are told that that eternal death is eternity in conscious torment in hell for the rebellion and sin against a perfectly holy eternal God. Now I'm not going to read the parables, you can do that later. I just want to show you Jesus making the same point three different times, over and over again. Luke 15:7 he says, "I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance." In Luke 15:10 he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then in Luke 15:32, which is at the end of the parable we all know well, the prodigal son, which is giving us a picture of a person turning from sin and coming to salvation in Christ, he says it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive, he was lost and is found. Now, these are important because if we really believe what we say that we believe, if we really believe what is taught in Scripture, and we see this so clearly in John fourteen six, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one, not a single person, no matter how good we think they are, no matter how nice they are in this life, not a single person will enter heaven's gates unless they enter it by and through Jesus Christ. If we realize that, then this repetitive truth that is emphasized by Jesus in these parables should help us make sense of all of the events in our lives. Because we are called to fulfill that great commission, to go out and make disciples. And we know that everything happens for God's ultimate glory. And every event progresses God's redemptive plan, whether we can see it or not. And works for our sanctification. And we can pray and hope that we are being used by God as he saves others. And the challenge for us is we don't often see that. But Naomi did. Naomi did. She got this great gift laid out right in front of her. Now we remember as we turn to the text that Naomi had lost everything that was important to her in this world. She had lost her home because of the famine in Bethlehem, and she left. She had lost her husband and her two sons to untimely deaths. And she is left now only with two Moabite, not Israelites, but Moabite women that are attached to her, one of whom by this time she has sent away, and the other who refused to go. Ruth chose the uncertainty of her immediate future, suffering was in sight. And she chose instead the glory that awaited her in heaven. And we read her confession of belief last week. And we'll read it again here, Ruth 1, 16 and 17. But Ruth said to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. We know from Luke that Ruth's conversion produced great joy in heaven, and it should have produced great joy on earth, but it seemed completely meaningless to Naomi. She was focused only on herself, and her current losses, and her uncertainties about the future, and she missed this blessing right by her side. And so verse 18 says, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go, not when she saw her faith, but she's not going to go away. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. That was it. What a terrible picture of discipleship. She just went silent. She missed it. And so we pick up in verse 19, our text this morning, it left only with the notion that this was a very quiet, very solemn journey. And verse 19 says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Now, remember, it had been over 10 years since Naomi had left Bethlehem. And it is a small town. It had a population of between 300 to 1,000 at that time. So people knew each other. They lived life together. They knew each other well. And she is now returning after this prolonged famine where the people suffered. But she arrives at a time where God's grace has been poured out. And he has lifted the famine. And the men would be out in the fields because we're told at the end it was the beginning of barley harvest. But it's not surprising that it created a big stir. Elgin's population is about right in the middle of that. How long does it take for people to start talking about someone returning to town or moving into town? That spreads like wildfire, right? It's the same situation here. She shows up back into town and they ask. They look at her and say, is this Naomi? And you can understand why that question would be asked. Ten years, but it was ten years of hardship, of great loss, of terrible grief, of worry, of meager provision, and that changes a person's appearance. She didn't look the same, and so it's not shocking that the women would look at her and say, is that Naomi? She looks different. What happened over those ten years? She used to smile more, and I don't see it now. And so in verses 20 and 21, Naomi reacts, and she reacts in an interesting way. She delivers a powerful testimony. It is a powerfully negative testimony about how she views herself in this life, about how she views God. And ultimately, how she prioritizes what she can see right in front of her, in her own life, over the fact that God is and may be accomplishing great things for all eternity through her. So she says in verse 20, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me? That is a sharp reaction to the curiosity of these women. Naomi means pleasant one. But she wants everyone to know that she is nothing like that happy, pleasant woman that left Bethlehem. She is bitter. She is very bitter by what she perceives as great unfairness in her life. And she wants everyone to know, as she wears it as a badge of honor, she wants them to see her past, not her future. She wants them to know that she is bitter by what has happened to her in life. The words of Peter come to mind as he's speaking to the wicked magician Simon, calling him to Repent In Acts 8.23, he says, For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, and that is right where Naomi is. She says to them, Call me Mara, which means bitter. That is how she wants to be identified. This is the, really the peak, the absolute peak of self-pity. But it is pride that ultimately drives that. It is not humility. Call me bitter because I deserve to be bitter. And I want everybody to know. And that is the opposite of what we are called to as children of God, as things happen in our lives. We're not called to constantly look back at the past and make sure everybody knows that we were mistreated or these bad things happened to us, and then treat everybody as if they need to be sort of bowing the knee to our own past and our own trials. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to do quite the opposite. Our life should look a whole lot more than, like Alan Cameron's in that story than it does Naomi's at this moment. You remember the words of 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Well, how can that work? Naomi gives nobody a reason to ask her about hope of any kind. In fact, she doesn't want to be identified as one who has hope. She wants everyone to ask why she suffers and why she is bitter. She wants her past suffering to be known. She sees it as unjust, it is unfair. She's been given a rough lot in life, and that is the first thing, the main thing she wants everyone to know about her as she walks the streets. And here she stands next to a young Moabite woman named Ruth. A woman who was raised in a pagan society, who had only eternal damnation to look forward to, but who God has saved. And she could just look to her side and say, my life has been tough, but I have this great prize beside me. And I can say that while my life is hard, God is good. And God saves And I'm so happy that God used me. I don't understand it, but I'm glad He used me to reach her. But Ruth means nothing to her. Absolutely nothing. Nobody in town, actually, is asking about Ruth in this story. Naomi doesn't seem to express the least bit of enthusiasm for her conversion or her salvation or her being there. She says in verse 21, I want everyone to know, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Which is a really ironic statement to make. It's a very strange way to set up her accusations against God. Because we know why she left. She left because of a famine. And her family was worried about starving to death. That doesn't sound like leaving with the kind of fullness that we would imagine. But obviously what she means is she left with what was important to her. The three men in her life who could provide for her and protect her. And they are gone. But she left full of something else. She truly left Bethlehem full of pride. And God commanded them. This is where you see that. You say, well, where do you you see that? Interesting. I should have had something really profound to say when that that came through. But I didn't. Sorry. I wasted an opportunity there. Uh, Naomi left because of... Because she was full of pride. Because Elimelech, her husband, was full of pride. And you might ask, well, where do you see this? Well, God commanded them to remain in the promised land. Uh, that is where His chosen people were to gather, to worship Him, to be set apart, to be holy for He is holy, uh, to be holy uh, for the nations to see. And when there is sin, He calls His people not to leave and flee, but to repent from sin and to trust only in Him. And we know because this is in the period when the judges ruled, that the nation was consumed with sin and rebellion. And nowhere do we see any repentance being made. Instead, what we see is Elimelech and Naomi and the family left with the pride and the confidence that they could do for themselves what God would not do. They could make it happen. And Scripture tells us all the time that God does not honor the proud. That it is a sin. He says in Psalm 18.27, God saves a humble people, but the proud he brings down. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Naomi doesn't really demonstrate any humility here even. She has returned without the men in her family. And she says to all the people there, regardless of the one standing right next to her, who has been granted eternal life, that she is returning empty. She's bringing nothing with her. She is not humble. She is self-centered. She is focused only on herself, and she is angry. It is almost as if she is saying to the crowd, I don't care what happens to Ruth, because I suffered. Look at me. Look at me. Look at what I went through. And so I want you to consider a better example, because we will all suffer, some greatly, and some it will be minor, but everybody has disappointments in life. So I want to consider one other example of how we might deal with suffering. And I want to contrast Naomi with Job, just for a moment. Because in a single day, you remember that Job lost everything. And it was through no fault of his own. It was through no sin of his own. Not that he was sinless, but it was not a punishment for a sin. He lost every earthly possession he had. He lost his livelihood. And in one day, all of his children were killed. And then listen to his reaction. This is when he finds that his children, the last shoe to drop, so to speak, had been killed. Job 1, 20 and 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. Right, These are signs of great grief. And he fell on the ground and worshipped. He fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is a man who has come to the end of himself, but knows God. And Job knew in his heart what the Apostle Paul would write many, many years later in Romans 11.36. He knew that every single thing Every breath you breathe, every beat of your heart, every minute of your life is God's gift to you. We do nothing to deserve anything. And so we are meant to use every blessing that we have in this life for as long as he chooses to allow us to have it for his glory and his worship, for however long he keeps us here. Paul had written in Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him, are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And when you recognize that, you can worship when you are blessed and you can worship when it's gone. And that was Job's heart. But that wasn't the end of Job's story. He gets it even worse than Naomi. In Job 2.7, it tells us he was afflicted with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Physical pain and a disgusting sort of Pain. And we get two reactions, Job 2, 9 and 10. In verse 9, it says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Be bitter. You deserve better. You deserve much better than this lot in life. God does not deserve your worship. He let you down. Who is this God anyway? Be better. Curse God and die. And in verse 10, Job says to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive disaster? And the Bible tells us, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is quite a contrast between Naomi's reactions and Job's reactions. But it begs the question for all of us to do some self-reflection and ask, how do you rate yourself yourself? in this life, in your walk with Christ, as you face disappointment. It's easy to see God's work in blessing. But do we, when we look at our blessings and, a big and there, and all the challenges, the defeats, the disappointments, the hardships, all of them equally as opportunities to be faithful and to serve and love Christ and speak for Him as a good God who is achieving all of his purposes for his kingdom. Now the one difference, or one similarity, really, between Naomi and Job, and you see this in both of their stories, is that they knew that God was ultimately in control of everything. Job knew God was ultimately sovereign and good, and therefore he could react in one way. Naomi saw God in a different light. She didn't seem to really know the fullness of the God that she was called to worship. Now, A.W. Tozer has, has written a famous book, many have read it, called The Knowledge of the Holy, and his very opening sentence is a well-known phrase, and he wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, and he's right because it will govern everything that we do. It will drive when and how we worship. It will drive how we live our lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. It will drive our decisions about how to follow Christ. It's all related. He writes a bit later, low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. And you see that particularly in terms of trials and tragedies. The essence of idolatry, he wrote, is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. And that is something that is easy to fall into the trap of. These unworthy thoughts, these low thoughts of God, these false thoughts about God, not driven from His revelation, are most obvious when you see people deny His word and discount it and no longer gather to worship Him and move off into other areas. Your view of God needs to be God as he has revealed himself to us. We must know him. Naomi's words express a lot about her belief in who God is. She refers to him in two ways in those two verses. She refers to God as Almighty. Sometimes it's God Almighty, Shaddai. It is a title. It is not a name. It is a title for God. And then she uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. Pointing to his faithfulness. And you'll see that in, in your English Bibles. We've talked about that before. We see Lord in all caps. That, that's just the way we've translated where she refers to him as Yahweh. So Naomi recognizes God's sovereignty. She doesn't discount that. But she does not recognize his grace. She sees him as all-powerful. But she does not see his, his compassion for people she recognizes his function as a supreme judge. We're going to see all this. But she sees him as a judge without mercy. It forms a pattern like this in her statements. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Yahweh brought me back empty. Yahweh testified against me. And the Almighty has brought calamity, disaster upon me. And using the title Almighty is not an accident, it's not a literary sort of convention so that we don't say the same word over and over again, it's done with purpose. Almighty is used some 48 times or so in in the Old Testament, 30 of them in Job, but it always has a meaning that refers to God's cosmic rulership, right? It is his transcendent oversight of everything created as the divine king. When God is referred to by the title Almighty, it's not just attached to His sovereign rule. It is His vast and incomprehensible greatness. He is the one, when it's used, who doles out the fates of the wicked and the righteous. He is the God who oversees justice and meets out terrible punishments to people who sin. And He is the God to whom people appeal and cry out to for vindication from their suffering. The title is pointing to God's irresistible and unyielding power. If the Almighty brings a bitter outcome or a great calamity or a disaster against you, it simply cannot be stopped and it cannot be avoided. That is what she is conveying here. She recognizes God's power, she attributes everything, every loss to Him. But you don't see in her response anywhere. Where there is any repentance. There's no crying out to him. There's just this bitter response, this prideful response that conveys this notion that I did nothing wrong, right? Nothing to deserve anything other than a blessed life. God owes her more, and she resents his power, and she despises his judgments, but there's no remorse. There's no sense that her own decisions in life, her own disobedience to God that led her away from the promised land could have contributed in any possible way to what happened, to her situation. But she doesn't just refer to God as this distant cosmic ruler. No, she uses his name Yahweh, the faithful, the covenant-keeping God. But she says it this way, Yahweh testified against me. It was His fault. It was Yahweh's fault that she was brought back empty. It was God Himself that brought the charges. And in this cosmic court, Yahweh brought the charges and declared her guilty, and the Almighty then destroyed everything that was good in my life, and for what reason? And that is why I am bitter, and I want everyone to know. I'm back, but I want you to know about my deep resentment. And she's missed God's grace in all of it. That through famine and traveling and widowhood up to this point, God is bringing her back. God has worked to call her from a wayward life in Moab and bring her back to the family of God. He has lifted the famine in Bethlehem, not because of the people turning to God. We're not told that. He has lifted it because of His grace. And most importantly, she missed this miracle That God gave her. He took a spiritually dead woman. And gave her life. He saved her for all eternity. She would be in the line of David. And when David. Who is the grandson of Ruth. When he sinned greatly. Murder and adultery. And the prophet Nathan was sent. To expose his sin against God. David wrote this in Psalm 51. Verses 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice. Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. What is he saying? He's saying that God's not interested in our rituals. That's not enough. In fact, it's not anything. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Naomi's outburst here means nothing that reflects a broken spirit. Broken in terms of her loss. But no broken spirit and contrite heart, only accusations against a perfect God. So what is she missing through her tunnel vision? Her vision that is only seeing herself, how things affect her in this life. And you might flip that and really just ask, who is she missing? Ruth, standing right next to her. Now, Naomi, to keep it in perspective... She can't see the end like we can. I'm sort of taking as a given that most people know the story of Ruth. And you know, starting in chapter 2, we're going to start seeing something quite different in this book and a total shift in who's the main characters. But she has no idea at this moment that God's blessings actually lay right around the corner from her suffering and from her crying out and really complaining and bringing these allegations against God. And she can't see at all that God is unfolding His redemptive plan through her. She has no concept of where the next king will come from and ultimately the Messiah. But what she can see is Ruth standing by her side, and she misses this blessing. And she misses this sign. God has not abandoned her. God has not left her. God called Ruth, and by focusing on herself instead of God, Naomi missed the words of Ruth's confession to her. Ruth has pledged her faithfulness to God, and in doing so, to his people. Ruth called upon Yahweh himself to seal her her commitment to remain with Naomi until death. Naomi is so caught up in bitter self-pity, she cannot see that it was Ruth that is the, really the manifestation of God's purpose and His love and His care and His faithfulness in her life. She's right there. And she's going to stay until the bitter end. And it's easy, is it not, for us to do the same? To ignore God's blessings that He brings to us through the people that He calls us to live life with. It's easy for people when they're disappointed in life or they suffer feel like it's unfair, and one of the first things they tend to abandon is the church. And yet it is here. It is here that you are called, that you are meant to be. It is here where he has called people to love and serve each other just as Christ has loved us. And when we get to the end of this story, you will see that it is Ruth's loyalty that helps Naomi start understanding the goodness of God. And perhaps with hindsight, we're never told Maybe she will see the wisdom of God in all of the circumstances and suffering in her life to bring her there. But let's look at Ruth just for a moment. She's not receiving any type of warm welcome in this story. She's there among God's people. She has shown up. It's it's like walking in the doors of a church, right? And she's not getting any kind of warm welcome. She's completely ignored. She's absolutely discarded by Naomi. Naomi. But she remains faithful. We know that from how the story will progress, but she's faithful. She's there. There's a bit of a lesson in that for us. Because when you follow Christ as Lord, then you understand that God loves us and sent His Son to take on human flesh and live among us. Not just to set an example of what holiness looks like, though He did, but He sent Him to suffer in our place and to die in our place on that cross. And when you understand that, and you've turned from your sin, and you follow Christ as Lord, and you trust Him alone for your forgiveness and your salvation, and then you heed the call, and you understand that you've been called to be part of a new family in Christ. And here's the kicker in what we see in Ruth. We're called to do that even when we don't get what we want from the people around us. And that's where it's tough. Because we're not joined to the body of Christ. We're not called to join into the church to be consumers. We're called to join into the church to see how we contribute to the faithfulness in the lives of those around us to actively worship God and to love and serve one another. And it is a beautiful thing. In 1 Corinthians 12.27, we get this reminder that now you, if you're a believer in Christ, he's speaking to believers, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And he's writing to this local church in Corinth, and in verses 14 to 26, he reminds everybody there that we're all gifted differently. We're all equipped differently. We're all made differently. We all have different things that we bring to the table. But we're called to live together, united in Christ. And he chastises the church, because there's disunity as people look to one another, and they're envious of a particular gift, or they value one more than the other. And that's all wrong. And it all culminates in this beautiful verse, verse 26, which tells us how it should look. If one member suffers, all suffer together. We all feel it. If one member is honored, there's no jealousy. All rejoice together. It's never about what we can get, but what we can give. And when you look at Ruth and what is going on in this story, if we're honest with ourselves, frankly, if I'm honest with myself, on this, Most of us in her shoes would have seen Naomi's bitterness towards God. And as we hovered there being ignored by the people who claimed to be the people of God and discounted in every way, that would have been the moment we would have said, I'm going to bail on Naomi. That, that, was, that was too much. I will find some other group to go to that will accept me. I will find some other place to go or I'll just go at my own. This is too much. But Ruth knew the God who called her. And she remained faithful. And she remained loyal. And we just need to recognize and understand the blessings that God has given us in the shared community of believers in the church. Because it is in the church where we find this unity and love. Not in perfection. Wouldn't it be nice if it was? But it's not. And we all know that. Sometimes we have disappointing experiences. Sometimes we're the cause. Sometimes we're the recipient. But we're people that God has called together. And maybe you all have perfect families, but this is a family. And most families don't exist in all time without an argument here or there. Or some strife between brothers and sisters. Right? We have a choice. And that's what this all points to. We can believe that our sufferings, that they're meaningless, they're a result of an unjust God. They are due to the people around us not being as holy and righteous and behaving exactly how we would want them to behave towards us. But we know that that is inherently wrong. For those who know Jesus, we know him as the author and the perfecter of life. We know him as the one who began a good work in us and will finish that work. And we take great promises In his word, that is where our psalm this morning pointed us to. I rely on the promises of your word. Now, how different would it have been if Naomi had known God and believed in this promise? I'm going to read Romans 8. If she had just known this, God doesn't change. This is the same God, but granted, she could not flip open Romans, right? Romans 8, 31 through 39, and think about what Naomi had accused God of. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? This is not hyperbole. These are all things that will happen in the course of life, as Paul writes. What a beautiful promise if you know God as you go through life. He is not our accuser. He is our Savior. Nothing can and nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that last little tidbit is an important tidbit. It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You don't get to have both. You have to turn from sin. You have to turn away from the ways of the world. You must bow the knee and submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, Naomi's entrance into Bethlehem was abysmal. Not the kind of thing that you want to put up on your wall as a faithful follower, as an example of your Christ-likeness. It was a terrible witness of failing faith in who God is. It was an entrance that was full of pride. And a wrongful claim, really, of God's injustice. But there is another entrance that we celebrate today. And it couldn't be more different than how Naomi entered Bethlehem. Now our passage just concludes simply in verse 22. With the statement that Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. But we know that Ruth would be the grandmother of David. And she would establish the kingly line through which Jesus of Nazareth, would be born. And so this Sunday marks the beginning of Passion Week, the lead up to the cross. This is the Sunday when the Savior who was born to that virgin in Bethlehem entered Jerusalem on a mission to save His people, on a mission to save all those who will turn from sin and believe in Him. And you see two things juxtaposed here. Naomi returned because of God's grace. It poured out on the city of Bethlehem and providing food. Jesus would enter Jerusalem to be God's gracious outpouring on the people who will follow him. Naomi came with bitterness and looking at this life. Jesus entered Jerusalem knowing exactly what lay ahead. And he said in Luke 18:31 to 33, and taking the 12 his disciples, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. There is no other person who deserves to be proud, Jesus deserved to be proud. And there is no other example of greater humility than Christ. If anyone were to be bitter entering a town, you might be a little bitter if that was laid out for you as your future, to be spit upon, to be beaten, to be killed. He was born into a humble life. He was laid in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus, truly God and truly man, he fulfilled the ultimate promise, which was God's promise to send one to save us from the just penalty for our sins. He suffered more than we'll suffer. He was tempted more than we will ever be tempted. And it was by taking on a human nature that he could satisfy God's requirement for perfect obedience. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. But that perfect obedience was only one half Of the equation. It was only one half of what was needed to save sinners like us. Because the just penalty for our sin against a holy God is eternal torment, is eternal death. We needed one who could suffer the wrath of God in our place, but he had to be perfect. And therein lies the problem, because only God is perfect. So, in God's perfect plan, established from before the beginning of time, He sent the Son, born as Jesus. And toward the end of his ministry, we look back and you see this prophecy that he would come not as a warrior king, but that he would come in all humility. Zechariah 9.9 foretold this, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and 500 years or so after that prophecy, we read in Matthew 21, 7 through 10. And they, the disciples, brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them, on the cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Who is this? Naomi caused a stir. Women were asking, Was it really her? She exhibits bitterness. We've heard the story. Blindness to the God who will ultimately save. But Jesus was different. Right before he entered Jerusalem, Luke 19, 41 tells us that he paused. And he looked at it and he wept. Because he knew that the people would reject him. They would reject truth. They would reject their only hope of salvation. And he knew that would result in their destruction. Same today. Same story today. And he wept. And then he entered And he also caused a big stir, the text tells us. And the crowd asked, Who is this? Who who is this? And that is the question that you must also answer. Because your eternal future depends on how you answer that question. You have to decide. Who is this? Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God the Son sent to save His people by His obedience and His payment for their penalty for sin. He suffered and died on that cross and He bore the wrath of God and He bore it for the sins of all who will believe in Him. And He rose from the grave and He ascended into heaven and He intercedes for His people daily. Who is this? He is the one who came as the suffering servant. But the one who will come again, who will return in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. It's easy for us to follow the path of Naomi. It's built into our sinful nature. It's reinforced by the world around us. It's tempting to feel entitled, to be full of pride, and to become bitter when life turns out difficult or when people disappoint us. But there is a better way. To submit your life to the suffering servant, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to obey Him when He says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow the Lord of glory, walk in all humility, die to self, live in Christ. Because we worship a living Savior, and His promise is eternal life. And to achieve all things for our sanctification and His glory. But His promise is not to make daily life easy or the way that we want it to turn out. So it is ultimately in knowing Christ, in knowing the God of the Bible. It is your faith in Jesus Christ, in truly knowing Him, fully trusting Him, that should give you courage and boldness and the ability to face life in all of its challenges that it throws your way, with the peace and the security and the joy, even, that can be found only in Christ. How you live your life, how you face your different ups and downs, that will be a witness to others about who you think God is. You may profess to know God, but how you live, what you do, tells everyone who this God is that you profess to know. And we know that He is perfectly good. He is the Creator. He is the sovereign God. He is the God who does judge in perfect righteousness. But He is the God who saves mercifully through sending His Son. That all began when He entered Jerusalem that Sunday so many years ago. But as that work was completed on the cross, we look to Him knowing the promise That God has saved us by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you humbly, but asking for your continued work in our hearts to strip us of pride, the self-righteousness, any sense that we have arrived in this life. And instead, we ask that you continually work within us to bring us to our knees, to see that you and you alone are sovereign and in control. You are the great physician. You are our great help. You are our rock. You are our fortress in times of trouble. But as we face disappointments, let us face them with grace and with mercy, always keeping in mind the grace and mercy that you showed us through your Son. Lord, as we begin this week where we work to remember and to focus on the completed work of Christ on that cross, and the fact that we serve a risen Savior, let us be a witness to all those who are around us, Father, we pray that they do indeed look at us and say, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? And that you would open their eyes to see and their ears to hear that that hope is found in your Son. Lord, we come to you grateful, knowing that we bring you nothing but our sin and we are so thankful that you have forgiven us of our sins and we pray that you continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as you have promised. And we pray this